Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. I've found myself into this rabbit hole looking at uh, mechanics of volleyball, and oddly enough, I, I, I sent a, a, a cold message on Instagram, and we got today's guest. So I'm really excited. He played university at Cal State Northridge, where he was an All-American, and when he graduated, he was in the all-time top 10 in attacks, digs, and aces. He's represented the U.S. in indoor volleyball, and he's played pro in Austria and Germany. And now, like I said, he's one of the leading gurus in our sport for mechanics. He's working with Torque V-Ball via Prime Athletes. Please welcome to the show, Isaac Newell. Isaac, thanks for taking the time, man. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So give us a quick rundown about how you got into our sport. So you being a Hawaii guy, I think you and I are a little bit older than maybe the Crab Brothers and Triborn and some other guys that are pretty famous Hawaii volleyball players currently. But what was the scene like for you growing up and how did you get into volleyball in a big way? Well, my, my parents played recreationally on the beach. So I actually grew up on Maui and they would go down uh, as, as a kid. I would go down to the beach with them, uh, a beach called... Um, Gosh, what is it now? Uh, oh, it's called Kama Ole One. And probably since I was as early as I could possibly remember, I was kind of screwing around with the ball on the court on the side as they played. So I've been around the sport literally as early as I can remember. Nice, nice. And was there an opportunity for you to play club ball or was the school system where you got like your competitive chances and, and really started looking at university or when did you really start taking it seriously? Yeah, it's interesting. My my um, my upbringing was was a little different than I think most big time Hawaii volleyball players. I didn't start playing club until sixth grade, and I got a, an opportunity to go and play for Kamehameha School. Um, that's where uh, Micah, our our national team center now, ended up playing, and that's kind of where I I really started to take it seriously. Uh, but I didn't play like real club volleyball, like uh, travel ball, until I was a junior in in high school. So my my parents weren't super involved, not in a bad way. They they just didn't understand it as much as you know today's parents, today's volleyball parents. And so I joined Outrigger Canoe Club my junior year summer, and that was. That was the first time, my junior year was the first time I was player of the year in Hawaii. And so that's kind of how the ball started rolling a little bit. Um, and so I played for them for the next two years. And that's when I also had gotten recruited to play at uh, Cal State Northridge. Wow, nice. And what can you tell us about your experience with Outrigger? Because that's kind of one of those hot spots or a talent hotbed where... It sounds like they got some cool things going where adults play with kids and there's a kids court. Like it just produces people who, who fall in love with volleyball, right? So what was your experience being on their club team? You know, it's interesting. Albuquerque Canoe Club is it's kind of in the, in the upper echelon in Hawaii. And they have, you know, private facilities and a, a private volleyball court. Three of them, actually. They have two big ones and then one smaller one. Uh, they also have a weight room. And they... You know, they've always had this this rich, rich history of high-level volleyball players. I never got to play against maybe some of the people that I looked up to, like Stein, Metzger, um, at that time. But I did run into other uh, other people, some UH graduates. Um, I don't know if you remember the guy. Uh, his name is Jason Salmeri. He played at UH years ago. But I remember being able to play against him there. And then we would always set up games with, you know, some, like whoever the top uh, volleyball players were in high school at that time. Because if, if one person was a member, we could have other people in and join. So there were always like really good competitive games there. But it was just cool to be a part of, of something that was, that was so long lasting, you know. And, and I mean, they're still producing really big time volleyball players. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you mentioned you caught uh, Cal State's attention. You were being recruited there. I'm curious, was there any other schools you were looking at? Or once the conversation started, you knew that was going to be the spot for you? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like a super highly recruited kid. You know, I was, I was fairly undersized. And like I said, I didn't, I didn't play club until my junior year. And so I didn't have a ton of um, viewership, I guess. And I had gotten letters from from colleges all over the place. A lot of East Coast schools. Um, Santa Barbara showed some interest. Pepperdine had shown some interest. 
but it wasn't it wasn't as much as uh, as Cal State Northridge. They were they were really pushing, and they were they were the, the team that usually got kids that were under the radar. And Jeff Campbell was always and still is, you know, kind of famous for recruiting non volleyball players and and making them into really good volleyball players. So he would get great athletes and tournaments of volleyball players. I think I was one of the the few actual volleyball players that they recruited. And I believe they recruited me because I could I could control the, the ball very well. I wasn't some like prolific attacker or scorer. Again, I was pretty small, but I could control the ball very well and that's something that was valued um, really highly there. Wow, that's that's super interesting. So when you look back at training, what was it like with these guys who didn't have that much experience? Like, what would Coach Jeff do to kind of get them up to speed? Because I think in our era, the, the California division was the division, right? Obviously, now it's balanced out a little bit with some East Coast schools winning the NCAA. But I, I think when we were coming through, it felt like if you wanted a better than above average chance of winning a gold medal, it was coming from the state of California at that time. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it. Cal State Northridge, they weren't, it, it wasn't like a, a super highly ranked school, although they were usually in the top 10. And it was, they were just under the radar a lot. And he, like I said, he was a whiz at just finding athletes. So there was a guy named um, Brian Waite that I played with for two or three years. Um, he was a basketball player, had played a little bit of volleyball, but he wasn't some like seasoned technical volleyball player you know he was just a very very good athlete and he was a middle blocker and jeff campbell was a middle blocker and so he he just i mean he molded him really really well and he would find a lot of guys like that and and it was interesting playing for jeff i don't after i my experience on the national team my own education my own experience it's not like Jeff was a super highly technical person in terms of passing and mechanics or anything like that. He just had a knack for turning these guys into into decent volleyball players. But, you know, the training was always very, very competitive. I mean, that that's kind of what the culture was. And you know, it was a it was a commuter school, and so the the athletic population was was really tight knit. I mean, I think it was like forty thousand people went to Northridge, but very little, very few of them actually stayed on campus. And so the athletic population was tight. Everyone supported each other, and I think that's what really helped kind of bolster uh, the success that was at Northridge. And you mentioned you were kind of viewed upon to be like a ball control guy and one of the guys with more experience. So when you look back at your career, like it's impressive to be in the top 10 in as many categories as you were. So were you relied upon pretty early in your career? Like, were you starting as a freshman? So, so uh, I actually redshirted my first year. So when I, when I got to college, it was, it was kind of a, it was a little bit of a rude awakening for me because again, I hadn't, I had, I mean, I was playing against the best, you know, in, in, uh, in junior nationals, but I didn't really have a hold of what the next level was really like. You know, and you're coming from a place in Hawaii where I found a lot of success. You know, like I said, I was a player of the year two years in a row. We had won states the last two years, and I just had this expectation that I was going to be competing at a higher level. Uh, but when I got there and realized, I was like, oh, shit, this is this is like the next level of volleyball, you know, whereas if you have like, you know, Micah or Taylor and, and all of those people, they were they were already competing at real high levels and they had experience with with like junior uh, the junior national team and stuff like that. I didn't have that. And so when I got there, I realized, oh, man, I'm, I'm sort of behind. And like I said, Northwich was really good about redshirting most of the guys that came in because it gave us a chance to just get used to that level, that speed, the power. And so, like I said, I I had an entire year to actually get used to everything. Uh, And that actually really helped me. And then from, from then on the next four years, I was the starter. And the main reason, as you said, the main reason why I was starting was because I could pass. I could pass really, really well, um, and that kept me on the court. It's like I said before, I was not some prolific attacker, 
up until my my senior year. But I, I played that kind of role player position where I was always passing. I took you know probably forty to fifty percent of the court sometimes defense. And again, it just gave me those those three years up until my senior year gave me a chance to actually really get a feel for for the game. Now, was that something that your coaching staff helped you identify with, or was that just you being like, "I want to contribute to the team, I want to play, so I'm gonna to have to be a ball control guy"? Like being like a six one or a six two outside, was that something you came to, or just the reality of what the NCAA was at that time that you needed to pass more and play defense and be good from the service line because you weren't gonna be the big bomber and out of system sets or situations like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was, I just wanted to play. So I never had the luxury of being like, Oh, I don't want to play this position or whatever. <laughs> it was just whatever, whatever I can do to play, I'm going to do. And that's just how it was. You know, again, I was the smallest guy on the court all the time. And, you know, it, it, probably in those first couple of years, I didn't even want to get set because I knew that, Again, somebody else could score much better than I could, but I knew that I had a, a really solid skill that I could contribute with. And so, you know, I I I, I just took that role player role um, to heart, and actually, we we did pretty well over the years. Um, and like I said, it was only until my senior year that I became one of the offensive weapons and at that point i had had enough experience but if we're talking about like you know the difference of of me and say like a a taylor crab he was he was gifted and he was around high level volleyball from when he was tiny as well and he developed much more offensively than than i ever did my development offensively actually came even after college but anyway, I, I digress. We can get into that a little bit later. But I, I knew that my, my passing role was something that I had to had to take on and I had to accept, and, and I did so. Now, it, it might be hard to determine, but was there one point maybe in your senior year that confirmed that you could play pro or you could be a USA volleyball player? Like It sounds like you're gaining confidence and you're gaining experience every year, but when did you know you could play at the next level? Um, I don't know if it was, uh, like I knew I could play at the next level. I just, it was like, that was just all I wanted, you know, for, for when I was a little kid, I, I wanted to play at the highest level I possibly could. So I was going to try to play regardless, but again, because I was, I was such a good passer, I, I got invited to trade with the national team after that so i think i don't know who who gave who gave jeff a call but they had chatted and, and i wasn't going on to the national team as an outside hitter they actually wanted to take me and, and trade me as a libero and of course of course i'm gonna say yeah whatever just just take me so when i i was able to to make it on i think it was 2008 that first fall block or winter block that's when i had first first started and i was with a whole bunch of other people tony kerr was there dad matthews from ohio state uh, this guy matt saran from stanford and a whole host of other guys but the interesting thing was is that because of how just the amount of guys that we had i actually i actually kept playing outside hitter for that entire amount of time so again let's start to get off topic but <laughs> That's, I just, I was lucky enough that that skill, my passing skill was, was really the reason why I could actually go on to the next level. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, the more off topic we get, it, it's all good. And I'm curious, was Hugh still involved with the team or was that Allen's era? Like who would have been in charge in the 2008 season you were there? So Hugh, Hugh was still there. They had just come off winning um, the Olympics, the 2008 Olympics, and he was still there, but he was kind of in transition mode because he then went over to the women's side after January, I believe. So he was he was the head honcho, and then as he kind of he kind of, it, it, he kind of started to phase out a little bit and. A guy named Ron Larson, uh, who's always kind of been around uh, the national program, was there. Another guy, uh, 
Jamie Morrison, who also then went off with Hugh to the women. And so really, really, Ron was was my coach for a long time. But Hugh was the was the primary reason why I be, he was the reason why I got onto the path of really understanding mechanics. So when we when we had first started training, we were going through just just normal hitting drills, and he goes, he goes, oh, you're 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 swinging wrong." And I and of course in my head I'm like, "What? What is this guy talking about?" <laughs> because that's the first time in my entire life, right? I'm an all American and all this stuff. Somebody told me I'm swinging wrong, and I I didn't I had no idea what he was talking about. And he was he was saying, "Oh, your sequencing is wrong," and, you know. Anyway, it didn't it didn't make too much sense to me. And so we went through this the next probably three or four months, a really, really painful time of trying to actually change my ability to swing. And so that's what I had learned a little bit more about, you know, how the body produces force. Now, the interesting thing is my education was in kinesiology. I was an exercise science major. But, you know, when you're in college and a kid, you don't, you don't really internalize your education and you don't really know it until you have to use it. So it was interesting as we started to go through the process of, of change, I started to actually understand what I had learned a little bit. And it took me, so I, we would, we would train every day in the morning is usually at nine to 11 or 11 30 then we would go eat at this place called the white house i think they're still eating there now this wonderful italian restaurant and then after that i would go back into the gym either by myself or with either ron or hugh if he wanted to come out and i would do it for like another hour hour and a half just to try to change my swing so like i i, I took these things super seriously because that's really all i wanted to do and it took me about four, I would say four months. And then all of a sudden, one day when I was like, I, I, at this point, I was like, oh my God, I want to quit. This is terrible. But I kept trying. And one day it finally clicked. And I finally understood and knew what the feeling was. And it was completely different from what I was doing before. But it was an extremely painful process of trying to figure that out. Yeah, let's let's dive into there. And if we jump back to your playing career, all the better. But uh, what kind of sparked me down this rabbit hole was uh, he was on Coach Your Brains Out and he was just talking and he talked about, he got off topic, but he was talking about the spike approach. He talked about the, keeping the integrity of the straight line, getting your feet there, because if your feet aren't there, you can't have a double arm lift and then you can't draw back and then you can't strike the ball. And he talked about without this sequence, people want to talk about wrist snap or arm swing. He's like, you can't get there without the sequencing, right? So with you actually being in the gym with him and having you pull aside, like, how detailed did it get? Did it start talking about like where are you framing the court and approaching to so you can keep the integrity of a straight line? Or what were all the things they uh, were breaking down for you? You know, it was interesting. I um, he he wasn't again, this was just in my experience, but he wasn't he wasn't the best at explaining it to you in a way that it would make sense. Now he talked about rotation and torque and, you know, the sequence, but I didn't really understand how that sequence went. I didn't understand, you know, the, the, the real big thing was that, and, and this is why I've, I've gotten so good at what I do now. and why so many people come to see me is because if you understand, if someone explains to you just in layman's terms, of how muscles produce force, it makes it much, much easier. So like when I was training with you, you know, we talked about, you know, approaching on a straight line, but more so about rotation. But the problem was I was a, a shoulder driven hitter, right? So I, I was consciously shortening my internal rotators, right? The muscles that, that, force the arm forward i was consciously shortening them to, to drive my arm at the ball so he would explain to me that my sequencing was wrong but it didn't really go much further than that and so 
after it took a long time. So there was there's a huge in between period between my playing career and then me getting into private lessons. But if we if we skip forward a couple of years, I really started to understand mechanics more and and make sense of my own education, muscle physiology, biomechanics, all those things when I started doing private lessons and I started reading scientific literature i went back to all of these studies that you know on the arm swing and then it and then it's like all of these pieces started to to fit in my brain and so it really became me teaching people a little bit of how the body worked and more so how muscles worked which really opens up people's ability to change. So like I said, with Hugh, it was just, this is the sequence, you're doing it wrong, figure it out. And then what I do now is, if, if, if somebody or if he would have told me, hey, what you're doing right now is you're using your muscles in an incorrect way, right? So you are you are using them, the contractile properties of your arm to force it forward. Now, if I told you that muscles are elastic, kind of just like rubber bands, and what we're really trying to do is we're trying to load or pull back, so to speak, your catapult or your slingshot, when you know a rubber band is stretched and you let it go, what does it do? It returns, right? It returns with a lot of force and very quick. Even just that, which I use a lot now when I'm training people, just that reference and to be able to visualize that, it it does something to your brain because most people, again, they think, oh, muscles, I got to push. But when you know that muscles actually work like rubber bands as well, it completely changes your understanding of what you're supposed to be doing. So that, to me was one of the one of the biggest shifts in my understanding and like i told you i had learned all that stuff in school but you don't it was never applied to sport in that way and so then when all of the puzzle pieces start fitting together you're like oh shit now i kind of get how all of this stuff fits you know and that's kind of where i'm at now yeah, it's so cool to hear about your process because you're, you're right. There isn't a lot on sports and most of the stuff I found would be either like a baseball or a football coach. Like Tom House is pretty famous and the ones that uh, he stood out was like 80% of speed to him comes from hip and shoulder separation, which is interesting that you've talked about torque a lot. But the thing I get caught up with baseball and football coaches is they're holding the object and they're on the ground, right? Where we're in yes. the air and we're striking the object, right? So. Yes. With your experience being a volleyball guy, did you find that like using yourself trial and error was the best to do it because there wasn't a lot of volleyball specific studies going on in this field? Like I think the physics apply, but to make it volleyball specific, you were kind of leading on this, right? Well, um, because I had to go through the change because I was a a shoulder driven, a contractile driven hitter, that's probably why I'm so good at training it now you know it's like when you have to change and you go through that painful process you're like oh shit i can help (laughs) i can help this person i know exactly what you feel i know exactly how you perceive how to hit an object and so that that was that that was the, the main reason why my my understanding became what it is um and so what ended up happening was because I want to be like I'm a, I'm a fairly driven person. I want to be good at what I do. You know, at first I was just teaching. You know, from my own experience, and then when I was like, you know, I gotta, I have to dive deeper into the stuff. That's when I started to read to read more of the literature again. And as you said, there's not, there wasn't a lot on on volleyball, and there was nothing on the things that I I really do and I talk about. And so you have to. Basically, what, what you end up having to do is you have to look at a lot of uh, baseball literature because that's really the closest thing to the volleyball swing. And so when you look at baseball, there are a ton of similarities. But as you said before, they have an object in their hand, but the all of the principles are still there. And so when you start looking at all of these studies and you, and you start to see, oh, okay, 
you know, their their step, that first big step in pitching is half of their velocity. You're like, huh, what's our step in, in volleyball? Oh, it's our step close. So that's where we generate half, if not more so, of the energy necessary to swing. And then basically all we're doing is we're taking those exact same mechanics off of the ground and applying them in midair. And instead of the the projectile or the object being in our hand, the projectile is our hand or is our arm. And again, it's, it's easy for me to explain this now, and it's probably hard for people to kind of uh, understand it or visualize it. But because I've done it for so long, it's like I can see as you leave the ground, all of these body parts either stretching or contracting to basically put the body in a certain uh, position. So I, do you want to keep going down this path? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And just one question before I forget, because sure. uh, a guy who kind of showed me your account is, is a friend here in the GTA. He coaches at York University, Nate Groenveld. He mentioned, um, he was curious to ask you, is the arm swing the arm swing, or is there room for body type? Is there room for just maybe I have restrictions with my shoulder? Like, is it a cookie cutter thing, or is there a lot of room to be individual and have preference with this thing? Uh, it is very individual. It's just like it's just like pitching. So if if you look at all the pitchers um, through the major leagues, you'll see a lot of the same characteristics, but there is a ton of individual variation. Um, and I think that's what people forget a lot is that you know I'll I'll talk about you know the universal stuff. I'll give a lot of examples, and for the most part. You know, a lot of the really great hitters, they look the same. They're doing a lot of the same stuff. But it's not to say that if you are outside of that range, you can't be successful. Uh, And a lot of people get stuck on the way people draw their arm back. A lot of people get stuck on, you know, how your pelvis and or hips rotate as you leave the ground, how your feet are positioned and through my experience, a lot of that stuff, like I said, is extremely individual. And there is a lot of room for variation, especially when it comes to kind of foot position, arm cocking phase, all of those things. And like you said, it depends on a lot of different things. It depends on your level of athleticism. It depends on what sports you've played uh, before volleyball or during volleyball. It also depends on your your structure as a human you may have you know lesser range of motion than someone else you may not be able to rotate in your thoracic region as much as someone else and that's based on genetics so kind of to your question there is a ton of variation and there you can be successful in that huge range and that huge spectrum Nice, nice. And if you had to give us a couple examples of like what is a must-have for you, like you've mentioned the step close is very important, the arm lift, like what are some things that you would argue are are closer to universal than specific and preference? So it's just the speed and power in your step close. If you have a weak step close, you're just not generating enough energy. So if you can kind of imagine as you take that step close and you hit your last two feet, it's almost like this bolt of energy gets pushed up into your body as you leave. And all you're really doing is you're taking that ball of energy and you're taking it from your feet and you're just delivering it through different segments all the way up into your hand. Um, now the interesting thing, uh, about like, like people, again, people get caught on footwork. There are people that have goofy footed approaches at the highest levels in the world and they can still hit the shit out of the ball. And the reason is, which is the, the, the second most important reason or or thing that I think is most important is the ability to open your torso or to rotate in your thoracic region because that's how you get hip-shoulder separation. So you talked about uh, uh, yeah. Tumhouse. Um, and, and then so then people are like, well, why is it so important to separate that? Well, the reason why hip-shoulder separation is so important is because what you're doing is you're preloading or you're eccentrically loading so you basically your muscles are stretching like rubber bands and you're preloading the torso so it would be the exact same thing as so say you're doing a bench press you take the weight off of the off of the rack and as you're lowering the bar down 
you can feel your chest start to kind of stretch. And that stretching is basically, again, stretching the rubber bands, preloading the muscles. So they already have elastic energy in them. So you can push back up. Now, if you've ever started from your chest position, it's extremely hard to push the weight up because there's no, there's no elastic energy stored. And so the same thing happens when you leave the ground, when a hitter leaves the ground, they have to rotate themselves open. And that preloads the core. It gives them this elastic energy that's stored. And then what happens, because there's elastic energy, you can rotate your torso much, much faster than if you were not preloaded. So step close, preload of the torso of hip shoulder separation. And then the last part, which you have to have if you really want to produce a lot of velocity, and which is something that I didn't do until after college. Imagine that after college is being loose and relaxed in your shoulder joint and then allowing your internal rotators to do the exact same thing as your torso. So when your arm is going back into external rotation, you're preloading, eccentrically loading your internal rotators. So basically throughout the body as you're leaving, it's just a series of stretches and then contraction so eccentric and then concentric and the eccentric loading is so is so vital because you're storing more energy in the muscles so before when i was in college i would open my torso so i would preload but as my torso came through my arm was coming through at the exact same time so i didn't have a lot of eccentric loading in my internal rotator. So I wasn't building that elastic energy. And so even though I thought I was hitting really hard, I was I was still not at my maximum with my velocity. So again, I know it's a long-winded way of saying step close, super important. Torso opening, right? Or eccentric loading is very important. And then same thing in the shoulder joint, eccentric loading of the internal rotators extremely important so those three are the are the keys now whenever i hear of a coach describing a really good arm swing like they would say like clay stanley had a whip of an arm swing and i'm thinking the example you just gave us like if if my elbow is the handle of the whip i only have my wrist to generate the force or this rotation you're talking about if like my hip is what sparks my whole arm swing and that becomes the handle of the whip. There's just so much more like elasticity, you said, to like snap through the ball, right? So when somebody has these smooth arm swings like Clay Stanley, are they the ones who are generating and, and basically your joints just go in order that it's going to be like your hip, shoulder, elbow, hand? Or how, how would you, these people who use the whip arm swing and maybe can't describe it, is that what they're talking about is just the sequence of joints moving together but in order? Yeah, so, it's, so in, in hitting or in pitching, it's called the, the kinetic chain in overhead throwing. And you kind of said the kinetic chain just works in pieces, right? So it's like in a golf swing, it's in a baseball pitch, it's in a quarterback throw. You know, all of these things are universal throughout overhead throwing motions. And so basically all you're doing is you're taking energy from the ground and you're dispersing it upwards through different body segments. So like you said, your hip is going to rotate first. And if your torso is is basically perpendicular to the hips, you're now taking that energy up and putting it into your torso. And then once you rotate the torso forward, that energy then transfers up to your shoulder. And as your shoulder goes into external rotation, that energy is built in the internal rotators and then basically catapults um, the arm forward. But the, so one of the things that people get confused about is the, the most important part is not is not your hips. Your hips don't create the power. It's just how the energy is transferred up. And so kind of talking about our last example, if you have a person that is goofy-footed, they're not opening their hips. Their pelvis is not open. So to say that they're having perfect sequencing would be incorrect because they're not even opening their pelvis. But the most important part is opening the torso, so the, the second unit, because again, the, the the handle is really the torso, and and more specifically, 
it's your your external obliques. So your internal and external obliques are going to work to open and close you. And those are really the muscles. Those are really the the engines of the the torso and the human body. The the reason why these people have a whip is because their shoulder joint is relaxed. Now the shoulder joint has the most range of motion, the most mobility in the human body. And if you're allowing it to relax, what ends up happening is the shoulder joint goes through a ton of range of motion. Because what you're trying to do at the end of the day, all overhead throwing athletes are trying to get as much external rotation as possible. The more external rotation you have, the more elastic energy you can build, and the more time your muscles have to generate energy, right? And if you look at throwing athletes over the years, and you look at their joint, there's actual structural changes that happen in the joint to allow for more external rotation. And when there's more external rotation, again, there's there's more power. So people that have a whip just have a very loose and relaxed shoulder and their torso is really what's what's the the main reason why their arm is so fast so if you can kind of if you can kind of picture like uh the torso as as this this ball of muscle and the limbs kind of just kind of flopping around in the air when you rotate the torso really quick it basically throws these these limbs, right? These dead loose limbs in the opposite direction, and that's where we get that big stretching from. And when the torso is really fast, that's how you get those limbs stretching extremely fast. Because what you're trying to do is generate something called a stretch reflex, right? The more forceful the stretch reflex, the more forceful the arm will just naturally catapult forward. So the arm is the is the whip. Right, the, the end of the whip and the hand and the wrist is that the kind of last crack of the whip. So sometimes when you when you can see these things visually, it can help you understand, oh, I can kind of see why they talk about how the arm is actually a whip, because it's not rigid, right? It's not supposed to be this this rigid object hitting the volleyball. Yeah, well said, and you're you're very good at describing this. I just want to play out one hypothetical, just for any coaches or athletes listening. So I, I missed sure. this in your bio. You you played on the AVP, so I'm sure you're familiar with Phil Dalhauser, who's one of the best servers, if not the best server at his peak. So he's goofy footed. If you were his coach, you would say because he has that torso opening, you wouldn't adjust that. Where if he was goofy footed and couldn't rotate his torso, that's when you should maybe intervene and say left, right, left is going to be your footwork because that's more optimal to create this rotation, right? But if an athlete's goofy-footed, it's not the be-all, end-all that you have to switch it. It's can they create this rotation, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in his case, like like you said, he, he could open his torso. And again, there's even, even some athletes at the high levels indoors that do the exact same thing. And you're not, you're not going to intervene unless – they're not maximizing, and even if, and even if they do, they were able to maximize. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be more successful, right? So maybe you start creating more velocity, but your consistency drops. So there's a that's a hard one, right? You don't want to just change for the sake of change. Um, in his case, no, I wouldn't tell him to change anything. And the interesting part is. When you have people that go from a goofy footer approach into a normal one, sometimes what ends up happening when you tend to open your feet and your whole body is that it's actually much harder to have hip shoulder separation. So people that have never thrown or played throwing sports for years, they don't have that movement pattern of glute activation and, and pelvic rotation pattern down. A lot of people don't. And so when you end up opening up your feet and your hips and your torso, it's extremely hard to have proper sequencing. And so it's not like when you change someone's footwork, all of a sudden they're going to be a lot better. In fact, when I'm training people that have, say, uh, a poor, uh, poor mechanics in the shoulder, 
I will actually have them face me with their feet so they actually understand what opening the torso is actually like. Because again, feet, foot position is not the most important thing, right? It's the ability to just understand, oh, I can actually open my torso even when I'm in midair. That's the, that's the biggest key. So again, long-winded way of saying, no, I would not train uh, Phil to change at all. Nice. I like how you keep coming back to their rotation because I'm thinking the, the baseball example, they're throwing towards home plate and the object always goes that way where we're hitting and either on the beach like 8x8 eight eight or indoor 9x9. Nine nine. So with the spacing and range we want to hit into, as a left-handed left side or if you were ever caught on the right side, like a right-handed right side, you're talking about the feet placement. So really it's just can they open their torso that, that in these challenging volleyball situations, that's the solution, right? Because I think as a right-handed right side, you're going to approach more straight than you would on the left, right? But your footwork would be similar or you would just change where you face to allow you to open up? Like what would you coach up athletes in different situations in our sport to still be optimal in this arm swing and this sequencing we're talking about? So it, it depends, right? It, it really depends on the individual. I mean, we can, I can give universal things to everyone, but that doesn't mean that it's going to fit every particular athlete. So you'll find if you look at some of the really good opposites in the world, a lot of them really turn their their feet, right? And they actually get really, really open, even on the right side. Now, again, they can do it because they're some of the best athletes in the world, but there are some athletes that actually don't open up their feet that much. And uh, what, what ends up happening if you do really, really open up a ton on your right side, if you're a right side hitter, what ends up happening is it, it becomes pretty hard for you to get force and power on a really, really sharp shot. Because what ends up happening is you have to rotate almost 180 degrees. And a lot of the time, what ends up happening is anytime you have to go across your body a lot, you end up slicing. Because you can't, you can no longer pronate, right? Which means you're you're ro you're rotating the thumb down. Anytime you're supinating or that thumb is coming up, you risk kind of chopping the ball a lot more. And so, if you actually, if I were to take some swings on the right, I generally do not open up my feet very much, but my torso opens up a ton. And so. A person on the right side, if I'm, if I'm trying to explain it just to a group, I would actually say, hey, what I want you to do is I want your feet, it's okay to be either straight forward down the line or even turned into the court a little bit so that when you jump and rotate, basically your torso is perpendicular to the diagonal so that you can still get force going both directions. So I can get force going down the line and I can get force going to the angle because I can actually rotate a little further, allowing my torso to face a hard angle shot. I know it's kind of tough to, to visualize, but really the key is being able to open up the torso and also understanding where you want to court. So like a left-handed or a, an outside hitter that's approaching on the left side, I will not have them open any further than perpendicular to the net because if they do that and they have to take a line shot almost every outside hitter that has to take a line shot if their torso is not perpendicular to the sideline will chop down the line because anatomically your joint can't rotate anymore and you're going to be supinating on almost every ball i'm sure you've probably felt that on the left side a little bit. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, this is very interesting. And I'm curious, just with coaches and athletes listening, are there any injuries that athletes should be looking for? Because they're talking about the rotation. Does anyone ever compensate to their lower back? Or are you talking about the shoulder being loose if it's stiff? Like when, when the sequence isn't working, what are some things that you have to be aware of as a coach to really make sure the athlete knows that they're, they're risking maybe injury by doing this certain mechanic or movement? So obviously, uh, hyperextension of the spine is not good but usually people will hyperextend because they, they didn't grow up throwing again this is like you just have to think of the, the volleyball swing as a, 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 an airborne throw and if you didn't throw a lot 
what people, what the body and the brain will do is that it's going to try to get force from anywhere it can, even though it's not super efficient or safe. And so what you'll have is a hyperextension to a flexion or a little bit more hyperextension. And then you start putting the spine at risk. And so there's actually a growing number of, of spinal issues and fractures in you know, the uh, lumbar or even thoracic region because there's too much hyperextension going on. And so a coach would really have to intervene then and go back to the ground, probably even sometimes what, what I'll have people do is just kneel on the ground and just work on opening and closing. And again, that, that has to be patterned down a ton. Now, in terms of the shoulder, if you're driving the arm forward, you do risk um, compression issues, you do risk slap tears, but even then, you know, you could have perfect mechanics and just the repetitive nature of the motion can put you at risk. Um, and so there, again, there's, there's many, many factors, but hyperextension is big, is a big one. And then, um, positioning of the elbow. So it's really funny. Um, you, you see a lot, Oh, there's all these questions or posts online about elbow high or low. And, and the, the funny part is it's like, I wonder why this is so, so hard for, for people to understand, but most people can't relate it back to a throw. The optimal position for the elbow should be level with the shoulders. And if you watch probably 95% of all high-level athletes, you'll see the exact same thing. Their elbow will be level with their shoulders. And the reason their elbow is usually even with their shoulders is because they have proper posterior muscle activation. So in, in almost all of the studies, they've shown that if you're not activating your rhomboid, which is that muscle that sits on the edge of your scapula, its job is to retract the scapula back towards the spine. If you don't have any rhomboid activation, almost all the studies point to having anterior shoulder pain. So if you can imagine the, the shoulder joint, so the scapula and the humerus, that arm bone, they articulate together, right, on that glenoid cavity. You can just think of that basically as a, a, a tee, a golf tee, and a golf ball, right? The golf ball is the head of the, the humerus. There's muscles that attach to both sides of the humerus, and they basically pull on it to hold that ball on the tee. So what happens is if you're not activating your rhomboid, you're not allowing the joint to be positioned properly. And because there's so much force in external rotation on the front side of the shoulder, right? The, the internal rotators, those muscles are being pulled, right? Or stretched. There has to be an even amount happening on the backside so that that, that golf ball is held tight on the, on the glenoid cavity. If there's no activation, what's pulling? It's all of the, the muscles on the front of the arm pulling the head of that humerus or that golf ball off of the tee. And so that's why you'll see in, in almost all those, those really great volleyball players, that elbow is positioned level with the shoulders as the shoulder is going into external rotation. Again, when you see an elbow start to rise up higher, basically you're just putting that, that, that golf ball right in a position to want to fall off or get pulled off. And luckily we have a joint capsule that kind of keeps everything tight in there. But again, muscle is what is really forcing the head of that humerus to stay articulated with it, with that uh, cavity or the scapula. So that's a really big one. And again, it's not, if you have a high elbow, you're going to get injured. That, that's not how it works. It's just your chances of injury go up a little bit more because the, that joint is not in the, the proper position. So you, you're you not married to one arm swing that says this is what's optimal. You're saying the must-have is that rhomboid's got to be working and the elbow yes. level needs to be with the shoulder, whether that's bow and arrow or a loop. You're all good as long as they can get to those areas, right? 
Yes, and there's like like we said earlier, there's going to be a ton of variation. So, you know, it's when coaches don't have a lot of experience with with arm swings, you know, and they see someone that has a quote unquote like roundhouse arm swing. Usually, the first thing is like, oh, we that's we got to change that. And yet, if you understand mechanics a little bit, a roundhouse arm swing is actually the most optimal because there's already momentum, there's already circular momentum to take it into external rotation. So that's the funny part is there's, at least in my experience growing up, you know, kids that have that type of arm swing, they're immediately like, oh, we, we have to change that. That's that's not optimal. And yet it's actually the most optimal swing out there. <laughs> very, very interesting. And I like how you talked about, like, it's, it's the rotation that works and there is a way to produce ground force. Is there anything different between court and beach or is everything just uh, – a throwing motion in the air that you talked about like is there anything specific to either discipline or or are the mechanics more universal and like we said each athlete can find their specifics but as far as like does beach need a different approach than indoor or because it's throwing in the air it's, it's all the same or, or at least similar um it's it's all the same really you know if you look at um say someone again like like taylor you look at the swing indoors and on the beach you'll see a lot of the same stuff um because again you're you're just trying to put the arm in an optimal position to stretch and catapult forward. But again, there's a lot more shots. There's different things happening on the beach, but approach wise, swing wise, um, a lot of it's the same. You won't see as much rotational swings out there, right? Or roundhouse swings only because of the surface. There's, there's, there's like a, on indoor, you can get off of the ground much quicker. So you have a little bit more time to cock the arm back. Whereas on the beach, there's just not as much time, but the elbow still is going to be positioned the same. Body is still going to rotate because again, it's it's just the same motion. Nice, nice. And I'm very interested. You talk about you grew through this as an athlete trying to make the changes. Now you're working with younger athletes. Is there a lot of emphasis on any mental awareness or knowing that this is going to work? Because obviously playing at your level and already being past university when you learned this, you had taken thousands and thousands of swings right so it took a while for you to change how do you encourage athletes to be patient and know that this is going to pay off because it's not a simple fix to really fix the the mechanics and the sequence and everything that goes into this right so when you're actually coaching athletes how are you promoting this growth mindset or that it's going to be ugly or it's going to take a while and and you're not going to get that instant gratification that you would in maybe some other skills you know again it depends on the individual when i'm taking people through this you also have to kind of watch even the even the wording that you say um i had a, a good friend of mine she's a three-time olympian nicole davis she's uh getting her doctorate in psychology now and she was actually working with one of my athletes and she wanted to come and sit in on on one of the lessons and afterwards i said you know hey what, what else can i do are you hearing anything that i'm saying that may be detrimental and she said well i mean you're you're, you're doing a great job but you should watch the, the certain words or the language that you say. So like one of the athletes that I worked with was having being frustrated because they couldn't figure it out. And she was listening to the words that I say. And sometimes I'll use the word, hey, you need to do this. You have to do this. And when you're using words like that, need, have to, it gives this, uh, this feeling of, of, oh shit, I have to do it right now. If I don't do it, like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to have a problem with it. So even just the language that you use can, can affect it. And so, you know, I'll try to be like, Hey, you know, this is what we're trying to get you to do. It will take time. You have to be patient with the process. It's going to get, it's going to be better on the other end. But, but at the end of the day, they do have to put in that, that amount of work. So if I get an athlete that has never thrown, and usually the first question I ask people when they come in with a lesson with me is say, hey, have you ever played a throwing sport, tennis, softball, baseball, football, anything related, javelin throw? If they say no, I say, okay. I said, you know, just, just to let you know, depending on what your arm looks like, this may take a little bit of time. So I try to prep them to know that, it, you know, the process may take a little bit. But usually everyone is, is pretty receptive to it. But again, sometimes I'll get people that I can't change, you know, and it's frustrating for me and it's, and it can be frustrating for them. But hopefully that's a little bit uh, fewer, fewer and far between. 
And is the best way to just treat this as it's a skill and you're going to have to go through the sequence? Or is there anything off court you like to encourage the athletes that if they can get stronger in this area or if they can, I don't know, just get a tennis ball and play wall ball and throw a bunch? Like, is there anything they can do to speed this up? Or is it really the volleyball approach is the only way to get better at the volleyball approach? Uh, no, actually. Well, again, so this, again, this is my experience. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything or put words into other people's mouths, but in my experience, and I've done this for six years now, about six years, and I think I'm coming up on like 13,000 private lessons. I know it sounds ridiculous, but if I actually go through the last couple of years, that's probably where it's at now. So I have seen a lot. I have seen almost everything you could see under the sun. And usually the thing that I will tell someone that hasn't thrown, I say, well, you're going to go home. This is your homework. You're going to go home and just throw. Now, even if the throw is not biomechanically perfect, that's not necessarily the point. The point is that they're just trying to get more used to and comfortable with the motion of opening up their torso and trying to allow their shoulder to get into extra rotation. So like nowadays, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time, again, it depends on the person, but I don't spend a lot of time with, okay, we have to get your foot in perfect position. I am more concerned with their ability to, to control their torso and their ability to move their shoulder joint. So kind of like you said, I'll say, hey, stay on the ground and throw every day <laughs> if you can throw for 15 minutes every day it will help our process and then basically what i'll then do the next progression is okay now now can you jump and throw because again we, we're trying to get closer and closer to an airborne throwing action so I'll, that's usually what i'll tell them to do that's their homework Amazing, man. I feel like we could go another few hours, but I know you're a busy guy and we, we did approach you with an hour interview. But uh, one thing I wanted to hear from you just before we let you go is a guy who played in the NCAA, played for the USA, played pro overseas, and now you're taking a deep dive in and helping more athletes. There had to be a funny or unique experience that volleyball has given you because I think all, all of our top level athletes seem to have found something that's a little odd that maybe other pro athletes haven't experienced. So I was wondering if you could give us just a funny story before we let you go. Yeah, I have a really funny one. It's not necessarily to do with me, but one of my teammates. When I was at uh, when I was at Cal State Northridge, the middle blockers were doing um, a middle hitting drill where they transition and then go up for a one, and they have to hit against another middle. And one of the guys uh, who shall remain nameless, hopefully, actually listens to the podcast and laughs. Um, transition went up, hit a ball, and that guy I was telling you earlier about Brian Waite was the blocker and he went up and, and literally stuffed him straight down. Now the middle blocker who shall remain nameless, uh, was not wearing, um, spandex. So obviously with guys, you know, your, your stuff will kind of flop around a little bit. <laughs> Basically what ended up happening is his nether regions were on the way up and the ball got blocked and basically hit at, at the same moment really hard and he had to so he had to get he had to stop he had to go out of practice and he had to go to the training room and so then i didn't i didn't see him for the next like two days and i i went over to his his place i said dude what 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 happened and he's like my my nut like expanded like i couldn't i couldn't play and i was like oh man you got to show me and he showed me and it, his his right testicle had swollen to the size of a light bulb and i was like oh my god there's no way and it was that big and he was out i forget how long he was out but it was like a, it was like a serious <laughs> a serious injury and he was out for a little while finally it, it, again it went back down and uh, the swelling went away and he was uh he was able to play again but that was one of the most ridiculous things i've ever seen in my in my playing career <laughs> did the whole gym was, just cringe and stop like everybody was just uh, gone for that moment in time <laughs> well well no one it happened so fast it, you couldn't you couldn't really tell so we were just like 
what happened? And he was just, you know, he was, he was down and he was, you know, gripping at his, at his lower region. And we're like, dude, what just happened? He's like, Oh man, I just, I just got hit really hard and he couldn't play anymore. And so he had to leave. It was only afterwards because he wasn't at practice that I was like, dude, what happened? And that's what it turned out that is not sold up to the size of a light bulb. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, a good one. We my, haven't had many of those stories. Story. <laughs> <laughs> that's up there. That's a good one, man. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, sweet. Thank you for sharing your career and, and then just learning about uh, what you've been up to with Torque VV and uh, Prime Athletes and, and everything. I'm glad you shared as much as you did. And they can follow your Instagram page to get more. I think you post fairly often and you give good examples of, of athletes and video and stuff like that. So if they're having trouble with any of the visual stuff you explained, definitely a good account to follow, follow Excuse me, because there's just so much video on there and good examples. So thanks for taking the time and sharing all you did. Of course, man. It's my pleasure. And, and you can let people know when they go on the Instagram. I don't think people go on Instagram live a lot or on IGTV. There, I have a ton of content there. So there's tutorials and, and things that will help that will help athletes a lot. Yeah, and I think I was able to find some stuff through Huddle. So if anyone has a Huddle account, I believe you got some stuff posted there. So even just Googling your name, I think people are going to be able to find lots of information in this area, right? Yeah, and, and on YouTube as well. A lot of the same stuff is posted there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Isaac. Enjoy the rest of your day. And like I said, thanks for sharing all that you did. My pleasure, man. It was fun.